Thank you so much for who you are. God, that you don't just love us, but you like us. Lord, that, that you see the ways that we mess up throughout the week. You see all the things that embodies what we do with our lives and, and you smile. Jesus, this morning as we, we look to you, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see you this morning. Lord, uh, but not just eyes to see you, Lord, but senses to feel your presence. God, we thank you for just this season of life and summer where we're able to hang out, relax, maybe sit in front of the air conditioner. <laughs> Lord, and, and we are so grateful for everything that you have blessed us with, Lord. God, we believe that your word says that you work all things together for the good of those who are called according to your name and your purpose, Lord. And Lord, that's not just the people that stand on this platform, but that is truth of everyone in this building this morning. God, I pray uh, solely that we would leave this this space knowing that you you have a plot for our story. You have a purpose for what may seem like chaos. Lord, and nothing catches you by surprise. Holy Spirit, we love you and we invite you into this space. Could you be about anchor this morning as we lean into you? It's in your precious and holy name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, welcome. Just in case you're wondering where I'm at this morning, I almost forgot my sermon, so that was a fun, fun realization. Uh, <laughs> I figured I'd give you an update because I told you that I was going to be living out of a Walmart parking lot for six days, and that does not come without some humor, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> we had uh, day one, so Sunday we had about 12 or 14 people that came up and helped us set up the whole tent. And when I say tent, I don't mean like something you camp in by any means, unless you're really hardcore, I guess, I don't know. Um, but it's more so a tent that maybe you would rent for like a wedding, okay? Um, it's 20 by 40 feet. Uh, it is made out of like vinyl canvas. So it's thick, it's heavy, it zips shut, and to anchor it down, it has these cement blocks, just to give you an idea, that are probably uh, this, this, this long, about four or five feet long, and come up to about my waist, and take a forklift, essentially, to get there. And so there's eight of those uh, to hold this thing down. And on Monday morning, Valerie, Kurt, and I woke up, stretch, get ready for the day in the Walmart parking lot, and we have an appointment with the fire marshal uh, to give us clearance, to look over our product and say, hey, you can sell fireworks. Good job. So they come in, and this, we're, we're no, like, this isn't our first time, you know, this isn't our first rodeo. We have all the signs up, we're all ready to go, we're like, this is just a formality, we'll be fine. And they come in, and they're looking at everything. They're like, wow, this all looks great. You just need another non -smo no smoking sign so you guys don't explode. And we're like, 
that sounds cool to me too. I'll put it out there. And so <laughs> they get to that and then all of a sudden they say, wait, we need to check how close you are to vegetation. So they come out, they get out of our tent and they look and there is a pine, a couple of pine trees that are within 10 feet of our tent. Now, just to give you an idea of the parking lot, it's like the most tree-filled parking lot I've ever seen in my life, okay? Especially for Walmart. And so there's no place that you can move a tent to be 50 feet away from a tree. But they say, you know what? I would just feel better if you could scoot it like 30 feet to the west. <laughs> I was like, scoot, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Scoot, awesome, yes, um, I will get right on that. And uh, I was like, I have no idea what we're gonna do. And by the way, just a side note, it's already 94 degrees outside. And there are three of us. And I look at Kurt and Valerie and I was like, what are we gonna do? And so we call the tent guys and we have to move all of the product that took 14 people to set up in 94, 95 degree weather. And I was like, Man, dude, can we just like cut loose of this? You know, <laughs> like can we can we set them up on fire and just be like, it was a good run, guys. We'll see you next year. You know, uh, <laughs> and I was just ready to give up. And so we get out there, and they called the tent guys, and they come out with a forklift. And you'd think that moving <laughs> a, a big tent like that would require some special skills. Uh, it was more like six guys, and they said, one, two, three, push, one, two, three, push, and, and they put down a tape measure, and we moved it exactly 30 feet away, and uh, when the fire marshal came back out, she didn't even walk in the tent anymore. She was like, yeah, I've given you enough grief today. Here you go, sell your fireworks, and, and it, was, it was a mess, um, and I don't think I've ever sweat so much in my entire life. Um, and I remember I just wanted to give up. I was like, yeah, we'll find the money somewhere else. You know, this is just, I don't think this is worth all that. And yet, we moved the tent. And I walk, later on that evening, I walked into Walmart to buy some Gatorade and some water because, you know, 95 degrees. And I walk out, and I can see the tent from the entrance of Walmart. And it's like pure visibility all of a sudden. And the Lord was up to something the entire time. How irritating is that, you know? Uh, <laughs> uh, because right at the point when I wanted to give up, he said, no, I have, I actually hate, this is part of my plan. And, you know, I said, well, I would have really loved it if it, there was less sweating a part of your plan, but that's fine, B.O.'s good, okay. Um, so, so we did this, and I remember thinking the whole time, like, Lord, I was ready to, like, call it quits. I was ready to say, you know, maybe we, we didn't see this happening. Maybe this wasn't a good plan. And he was like, no, Lindsay, I have something up my sleeve. Now, I think that a lot of times we find ourselves in situations where we are ready to give up. Um, maybe not as many cement blocks, <laughs> you know, maybe not as much sweat, but it pushes us to a place where we're like, man, this isn't worth it. And honestly, around our entire culture, this is kind of our, the way we live life. Uh, this is when we cut loose from jobs because they're not working out. This is when we lease new cars so we can have the latest and greatest. 
and we give up on things and people, and this is a way that we do things. And I think that one of the perfect ways to illustrate this in our culture is celebrity marriages. Um, uh, celebrity marriages, they are so short that people take bets on them. You know, how long is this going to last? And so I looked up some of the shortest celebrity marriages to show you today. Um, and I have a couple of pictures to show you with that. So we're going to go from longest to shortest. So the first one is Elizabeth Taylor and Conrad Hilton. Now, if you're in my generation and you're like, Conrad who? This would be like Paris Hilton's grandpa. And they got married in May, and their marriage lasted 205 days. So basically, they got married in May, and they barely made it to Christmas, okay? Uh, and of that time, they were on a three-month honeymoon. So they basically got home and said, yeah, this isn't going to work. Um, the next one that I have is Kim Kardashian. I had no idea she was married before Kanye, okay? I had no idea. And I don't know who this guy is. I didn't even write his name down, honestly. I don't know who he is. But this wedding happened, and there was a two-day e-Hollywood special on the dream wedding that they had. It cost $10 million. And you know how long it lasted? 72 days. Oh. Okay, next one, and this one this is near and dear to my heart, is Cher. <laughs> Cher uh, married this man named Greg Allman, and it was shortly after her divorce of, uh, of Sonny, and it lasted a total of nine days. Nine days. I bet, he, I bet his farts were terrible. That's my guess. You know, I don't know. Uh, but this one topping the charts is one of my favorite pop stars from when I was growing up, and that is Britney Spears. Britney Spears married this man named... Jason Alexander, and as quickly as their marriage made headlines, it was annulled 55 hours after their ceremony. Yikes, right? Now, why do I share all of this old celebrity gossip? I think it's because it illustrates a point, and it illustrates a need that we all have. And that need is the thing that keeps us from giving up. Uh, it's the need uh, that makes love last. It's the need that says, I will not cut loose. And that is the need for hope. Hope that my life and your life, it has a plot. Hope that all this pain and nonsense will one day make sense. And when I say hope, I don't mean optimism. I mean an inner conviction that there is a chance, a future, a purpose, a justice. And whether we have realized it or not, hope builds everything. Hope builds a marriage. Hope builds the thought that my God wants to live in me, and he thinks it would be better if I did it with another human. Hope builds our greatest dreams. It is the, the building blocks of our purpose. That God has a plan that is bigger than me, one that is going to impact somebody around me for his glory. Hope is the main ingredient for perseverance. We give up without hope. In fact, hopelessness causes some of the most tragic endings, doesn't it? Hopelessness is what drove a man in the South to string himself up on an old oak tree 
with a note, this tree is the only stable thing left in this world. Hopelessness is found at the bottom of a bottle. It is found at the heart of every addiction. It is the bedrock of our greatest regrets. Now, this man named Garrison Keillor, he's a famous American author, and he was asked to judge a national poetry contest. And as he's reading thousands upon thousands of poems across America, he gets halfway through and he said this, hardly any poems were written for amusement, for the pleasure of language. Almost all were compelled and driven out of the poet's maimed past. We live in a society where hopelessness is our ethos, where it's the thing that we all understand. Hopelessness motivates our decisions and our greatest fears. And while we, you would think that living in a hopeless society would look something like Dorothy's Kansas in The Wizard of Oz, black and white and dull, it actually doesn't. Uh, Steve Deneff wrote about this. He said, of course, a hopeless generation is never a dull one. More likely, it will be quite the opposite. Because in our humanity, we combat hopelessness with pleasure. We combat hopelessness uh, with laughter, even. And if you don't believe me, turn on the television and you will find endless amounts of comedic sitcoms, late night comedies, and tasteless jokes. You know, we use laughter to, to avoid the pain of life. And we're quick to find humor in almost everything. Uh, when the Challenger exploded, killing seven people, instantly there were jokes about feeding the fish in the ocean. When a plane crashed in gator-infested swamps of Florida, there were jokes before they even recovered the first body talking about the airline food. In the same way, laughter finding its way into a funeral or when we laugh, when we feel insecure, we use humor to cover up this hopelessness. And even while I was writing this sermon, I thought, wow, this is a really downer moment. I need a joke here. <laughs> we use laughter to, to not admit that it hurts. But also, this, is, this isn't just in, in uh, culture, it's in scripture too. Uh, Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2 verse 12. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. Listen, you lived in this world without God and without hope. So where do we find this hope? How do we secure this hope? And everybody said their rehearsed Sunday school answer, Jesus! Uh, but this big of a question, it merits a bigger explanation. And, and who better to learn from than Paul himself? Uh, Paul knew suffering. He knew hardship. And still, he spoke about hope all the time. And today we're going to look and we're going to read through a few of Paul's writings and look at the circumstances of his life and see some of the things that he knew about hope. And most of us know this, that before Paul became a very influential person, uh, some scholars say that he was the most influential Christian that ever lived, second only to Jesus. Before he was that, he was a zealous killer of Christians. Uh, he, he sought them out. 
Galatians 1 verse 13, it says, You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how I violently persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews in my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. At the beginning of Paul's adulthood, he set out to kill anyone and everyone that turned their lives to Christ. There's a story in Acts of how he was the person that held the men's coats so that they could pelt the families harder with stones. He also wrote that he would throw people in jail, women, men, and children, knowing they would die there. And it says that he, was, he had the most zeal and that it was unmatched by any of the people that were persecuting Christians. And yet, try as hard as he could, he could not snuff out Christianity. You know? They were like ants or uh, maggots or, oh my gosh, bedbugs, PTSD, all right? Um, <laughs> they were like bedbugs. Uh, try as hard as he can. They still kept doing the stuff that they did. And this leads me to the first thing that Paul knew about hope, and that is that hope can't be faked. Hope can't be faked. Have you ever watched somebody try to fake some hope? Have you? I have. Um, I have watched somebody try to fake some hope. And you know her, you love her, uh, you worship with her every Sunday. That is Pastor Elizabeth, right? I have watched her fake some hope. <laughs> there was, a couple of years ago, we drove down uh, from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. We drove the width of South Dakota. <laughs> she knows where I'm going. And then we drove the length of Wyoming, okay? And this was in late December, okay? And I drove the width of South Dakota, and it was a great old time. Let me tell you what. I was showing her sights, you know. I was showing her the things to see. I was telling her stories of my childhood. It was beautiful and marvelous. I'm not kidding you. I'm driving, and we crossed the Wyoming border, and somebody flipped the winter switch. Like, I'm not kidding you. It was like sunshine and lollipops in South Dakota. We crossed the border, and it's like tundra, and, and wind, and rain, and snow, and it's all blowing, and I say, I can't drive in this. Like, this is all you, girl. And so she gets behind the wheel, and she does fine, and we're, we're talking, we're going, and it gets to the point where we need to turn south and go down through Wyoming. And we stop at a gas station, I call my dad, and I was like, yeah, it's going pretty well, it's going pretty good, and I get out in the car, <laughs> and, and Elizabeth says something to me. She says, I know the GPS says to go this way, but I know a faster way. <laughs> Famous last words, okay? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I don't know, she's really smart. She's getting a master's degree. I trust her, like, let's do it. And I was like, she's driving anyway, that's fine. And so we get onto this back road that is a skinny two-lane highway in Wyoming, which is not flat, okay? And we start driving, and I swear to you, we could have been driving on a lake, and I wouldn't have known it, because the ice was so thick. And with every hill and every valley, I thought, this will be our last. And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I don't know how we're going to do this. I'm, I'm trying to talk myself down. I'm trying not to hold on to things to freak out Elizabeth. And during the whole time, she's giving me pointers on how to drive in snow. 
I was like, okay, she's fine. So, so we drive in this for like two or three hours, and we get off onto a major interstate, thank the Lord, where they believe in salt, you know. We get off, and we both breathe this sigh of relief. And Elizabeth says something that I will never forget. She said, man, I've never driven on something that bad before. (laughs) 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 Ah, and my heart just sank straight down to the interstate. (laughs) See, and so here's the point here. You can fake hope, but only for so long, okay? People are going to figure you out. Uh, You can tell yourself, like, things are okay, but it's only going to last for so long. And eventually things come out to the surface. And Paul knew that. Paul knew that you, you can't fake hope. Uh, look at this in Romans 5, verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom he, we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Listen, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. He says hope, it has to be grounded in something stronger. It has to be grounded in the glory of God, not in my personal strength or my personal bravery. We were out, on, <laughs> we were out at the fireworks stand, and Dale drove the church van up there. And <laughs> Valerie goes, wow, he's brave. And I said, brave and stupid sometimes mix, okay? You, you, cannot, <laughs> you cannot fake that, and you cannot have hope that is just stuck on your sheer bravery. It has to be about something stronger than that. Or else, let me tell you what, your marriages, your dreams, your jobs, the big things in your life, you're going to give up. You're going to cut loose. Paul, he watched crowds of people be persecuted, and yet that didn't change the power of Jesus. Think about this. There were Christians that saw men die brutal deaths and then go home that night, sit in their dining room, and inspire new believers with hope. You can't fake that kind of hope. Life changes when you have hope. You can face almost anything when you have that kind of hope. Which brings us to our second observation. Hope is learned the hard way. And I wish it was another way, but this is an unfortunate reality for Christians. Hope is learned the hard way. Hope is found through suffering. I was reading a book by Steve Deneff, and he talks about, he says, if you're looking at all of the religions, the best test, uh, the final challenge for any religion out there is how that religion handles suffering. And he said, Buddhists try to eliminate it. Uh, Christian scientists deny it, Muslims accept it, other religions inflict it, but only Christianity transforms it. He goes on to say, so countless scriptures portray suffering not as an inconvenience to be tolerated while standing in line for heaven, but as a means for being conformed into Christ's image or becoming like him in his death. Paul, a man who persecuted Christians, also spent years in a a prison for his beliefs. He knew this, that that, um, 
He knew this deeply, that the deepest hope that you can ever find in this world, it comes from the darkest of circumstances. It comes from the hardest places that you've ever had to go. Read verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produce perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now, you may not know this about me. Uh, maybe, maybe you do, but sometimes I have a tendency to become a little bit of a control freak. Okay? <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> okay. Um, I can become a little bit of a control freak, especially when things don't go as planned. Okay? Um, I may as well be that guy on the A-team. It's like I love when a plan comes together. Um, and when things don't go as planned, when I face hurdles, I'm a control freak, and I want to control everything. Uh, leading up to the fireworks stand, I was really stressed. And when I get stressed, things get cleaned, okay? And I organized my closet. What? Okay? Um, but I'm a control freak in that way. And sometimes when things don't go as planned, I start figuring out how God can really just fix it. You know, Lord, my car broke down, so... God, if you could just have a random check sent to 1818 Eastdale, that would be solid. You know, Lord, I really want to get married, so here's my phone number. Here's my list of likes and dislikes. I will see him next week, you know. Um, Lord, I, I really just am struggling with this person. They're making me so angry, so if you could just tell them how terrible they are, that would be really helpful, and I would never have to deal with it. Have you ever done that? Where you concoct a plan for the Lord, and what would Paul say if we were doing this? He'd say like, oh, oh sweet baby girl. <laughs> oh, sweet baby boy. No. This is an opportunity. That is an opportunity. For, those are the moments where the Lord wants to strengthen your hope. And this is an inconvenient truth that hope comes the hard way. Because it's not just Paul that says it. It's all over Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it. Moses, prime example. Jesus, or God could have gone to Pharaoh and changed his heart. And the story would be much shorter. He, like Moses would have walked in and said, Hey, dude, uh, will you let my people go? And he'd be like, Yeah, sure, dude. See ya. But instead, he chose to do it the hard way. He chose to show them his sovereignty and his power. And instead, it took much longer. Uh, when they are standing at the shore of the sea... The Israelites could have walked around it, but the Lord says, no, no. He says, I want you to do something much harder. I want you to sit here, and I want you to trust me and put that stick in the water, and I'm going to split it. He always chooses to do things the hard way. Gideon had 32,000 soldiers, and he could have pulverized the Midianites. And the Lord says, nah, send 22,000 of those away. And if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, Okay, 10,000, that's not bad. And the Lord says, no, no, send all but 300 away. See, love, he, God loves to give us hope, but he does it the hard way. Uh, another example of this is our lives, but also David and Goliath. Man, there were a lot of ways to take down a giant. And he says, go get that runt. 
Go get the guy that's taking care of the sheep. And by the way, take off his armor and give him a rock. The Lord loves this. And in our lives, it's so true. Like I say, Lord, if you could just A plus B equals C, like just run through my equation and it will work out. And he says, no, my child. There's so much more hope for you. And a lot of times, hope is, is learned this hard way, and, and you have to decide that you will trust Jesus rather than the world. Hope isn't learned by raising your hands in church, and I know, like, and that is an amazing moment. But hope isn't learned just raising your hands and burying yourself at the altar. It's learned when you face trials of many kinds, when you face everything imaginable, and you say, Jesus, I will lean into you more. It's kind of like a bouncy ball. Um, if, if I had a bouncy ball and I hit it against this carpet, it wouldn't go very high, would it? But if I had a bouncy ball and I hit it on this wood flooring, that sucker could shoot up to the roof, right? Because it's bouncing against something that's hard. You and I, we learn hope, we find hope when we face hard circumstances. When we face things that, that challenge us and stretch us, Stephen Furtick, he said, disappointment is the doorway to a deeper hope. Meaning the most painful situations is God's most possible opportunities. That he loves you, that he has a plan for you, that there's something bigger at play. And this is the final thing that Paul knew about, about hope. And that is, holiness is hope. Holiness is hope. And if you go back, you, it is synonymous with hope. Holiness is learned the hard way, and holiness cannot be faked. Holiness is hope. Read Romans 5, verse 5. It says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God loves us, and God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope doesn't put us to shame because the Holy Spirit, it pours God's love into our hearts. And as the Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts, all that other junk has no room to stay. All our past regrets, all of our hurts, all the hurdles that we've gone through, it has to leave. Because my, my hope and my heart find strength in God alone. And that's why hope from suffering is so important. Because hope, it makes us holy. Hebrews 12, verse 10, it says, They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. I'm going to invite the, the band up to get set up, but so often as Christians, we experience a difficult moment, and we ask the Lord to end it. We ask the Lord to make it better. We ask God to get rid of the hardship. But what if, what if the very hope that he has for you is nestled deep within the circumstances you find yourself in? What if he's not wanting to end this circumstance? What if he's trying to give us a new hope? 
Oftentimes, even I'll hear Christians say, I'm just sick of this world. If I could just go to heaven, that's my hope. Listen, hope isn't heaven. Hope for you and I is holiness. It is living how Christ lived here on earth. Steve Deneff, he said, for holiness, not heaven, is the hope of a Christian. You will not be happy in heaven until you start living out heaven's realities here on earth. Let me say that again. You will not be happy in heaven unless you live heaven's realities here. And the only way to do that is to endure these trials with an unwavering hope that God has it under control. And the beauty of hope is that suffering does not diminish hope. It produces it. Our core verse as a church is that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls firm and secure. Would you take a posture of prayer this morning, whatever that looks like? And I want to ask you this question. Are your current circumstances, are they producing hope? Are you waiting on the Lord? Or are you waiting for this to be over? Hope and peace, they are tied so closely together that because we have hope, we have peace. I remember after my parents' accident, I was talking to my mentor and he said, Lindsay, your calling hasn't changed just because your circumstances have. And I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. <laughs> but just because life has gotten off track or overwhelming, there's still a plot. There's still a plan. There's still a purpose. And your calling, it has not changed. His love for you has not wavered. Lord Jesus, the reality of truth and of hope is that, Lord, you, your hope comes from this deep understanding of how much you love us, knowing that you wouldn't, you wouldn't call us somewhere and abandon us. You wouldn't call us and then not equip us. You wouldn't let us go through a trial without you. I'd like you to do something for me and, and just imagine the circumstance in your life that, that you feel hopeless in. Maybe it's a person or a relationship. Maybe it's a task. Lord, we built this church on the truth that you are the giver of hope.
And we may be facing the trial portion of this situation. But we know that on the other side is a firm and secure anchor for our souls. Jesus, I pray for a supernatural hope and peace to fall on us. Lord, that you would give us perspective when we feel overwhelmed. That you would whisper to us when we start waiting for it to be over and not waiting on you to show up. Jesus, we want to trust you. And we want to put our hope, not our optimism, not our glass half full sort of mentality. We want to put our firm and secure conviction that you can and you will move in you alone. Jesus, we love you. Help us to follow you even closer.